Welcome to George McDonald and Us. This is Catherine. And this is Sean. And today on the George McDonald and Us podcast, we are going to be reading a section of The Castle by George McDonald. So we're moving on to a short stories. At least for this, the next two episodes, we're going to cover one of his short stories, but we're going to do it in parts so that it's not too overwhelming. But first, there are two exciting things. The first one is we actually have a listener question. So a listener submitted a question to us, and we'd like to read the question aloud and answer it on the show. So we're pretty excited about that. This listener's question is, what are each of your major literary influences and how do these influences affect how you read McDonald's stuff? Oh, I can start. I, I'm not much of a reader, so I really don't have any major, literally, major literary influences. George McDonald is really the first author that I've gotten into, kind of. So I'm sorry, but I don't really have an answer to that. How do you, maybe, um, I guess, how do you choose what of his stuff to read? Do you have? I like the stuff that's a little bit more challenging or has something that's a little more unorthodox to think about. Yeah, anything that's a little outside the box, maybe, which has a lot of his stuff, I think, but in a good way, so. Yeah. What about you? Well, I, this was a hard question for me to answer just because I have, like, I love Tolkien and I love Dostoevsky and I love Sigurd Unset and I just feel like, okay, Sigurd Unset and Dostoevsky might be similar, but Tolkien, I mean, it's like Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's nothing like um, the Brothers Karamazov or Kristen Lavren's daughter. And I just read... Anna Karenina, and that's got to be one of my all-time favorite books, too. And so I just feel like those are two very different influences. But I will say, I guess thinking about this question, how those things could relate to how I read George MacDonald, at least for Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and Sigurd Unset, it's like when I read their books, it's like I'm encountering a person. All right, like I'm meeting a person, I'm getting to know a person. And it seems to me that when I read the George MacDonald stuff, I try to look at his work as if it was like a person. Mm. Especially, and I think this is good timing for this question because the short story we're about to read, I was very drawn to it for this very reason. Like I, I look at the story as a person and we'll get more in depth on that but of course I mean and thinking about Tolkien not to leave him out we know George MacDonald influenced Tolkien so mm -hmm. I guess I sometimes try to see like what in George MacDonald's writing echoes in Tolkien's work and we're gonna see that tonight too I think I think the story has some of that 
The second thing we're celebrating is that we have doubled our number of followers. We've gone from one to two, which well, I feel like good. it's doubled. And I feel like this is, uh, it's only going to get harder <laughs> to double our numbers, yeah. right? So I think, hey, I'm, we're celebrating. I'm drinking some, it's called Scottish Morn. It's a good black tea. And Sean fixed me up some, what's it called again? Drambuie. Drambuie, which is from Scotland, right? Scotch. Yeah. Scotch. Whiskey. Yep. Scotch whiskey. And uh, Sean's going to be lighting his pipe up. Oh, and Sean's got a beer, too. What you drinking yeah. there, Sean? Again? I don't remember what this is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, a weird name. It's a Wisconsin beer. Yeah. Okay. Well, um... Without any further ado, Sean's going to read the short story, or at least ha like a part of it. Well, it's a little more than half, but Sean's got this one tonight. So enjoy, sit back. And if you need to pause this and get yourself a tea or a beer or a, a Scottish drink, then please do. Okay. The Castle by George MacDonald. On the top of a high cliff forming part of the base of a great mountain, stood a lofty castle. When or how it was built, no man knew, nor could anyone pretend to understand its architecture. Everyone who looked upon it felt that it was lordly and noble. And where one part seemed not to agree with another, the wise and modest dared not to call them incongruous, but presumed that the whole might be constructed on some higher principle of architecture than they yet understood. What helped them to this conclusion was that no one had ever seen the whole of the edifice, that even of the portion best known, some part or other was always wrapped in thick folds of mist from the mountain, and that when the sun shone upon that this mist, the parts of the building that appeared through the vaporous veil were strangely glorified in their in indistinctness so that they seemed to belong to some aerial abode in the land of the sunset. And the beholders could hardly tell whether they had seen them before, or whether they were now for the first time partially revealed. Nor, although it was inhabited, could certain information be procured as to its internal construction. Those who dwelt in it often discovered rooms they had never entered before, yea, once or twice, whole suites of apartments of which only dim legends had been handed down from former times, some of them expected to find one day secret places filled with treasures of wondrous jewels, amongst which they hoped to light upon Solomon's ring, which had for ages disappeared from the earth, but which had controlled the spirits, and the possession of which made a man simply what a man should be, the king of the world. Now and then a narrow winding stair, hitherto untrodden, would bring them forth on a new turret, whence new prospects of the circumjacent country were spread out before them. How many more of these there might be, or how much loftier, no one could tell. Nor could the foundations of the castle in the rock on which it was built be determined with the smallest approach to precision. Those of the family who had given themselves to exploring in that direction found such a labyrinth of vaults and passages and endless successions of down-going stairs. Out of one underground space into yet, yet lower, 
that they came to the conclusion that at least the whole mountain was perforated and honeycombed in this fashion. They had a dim consciousness, too, of the presence in those awful regions of beings whom they could not comprehend. Once they came upon the brink of a great black gulf, in which the eye could see nothing but darkness, they recoiled with horror, for the conviction flashed upon them that the gulf went down into the very central spaces of the earth, of which they had hitherto been wandering only in the upper crust, nay, that the seething blackness before them had relations mysterious and beyond human comprehension, with the far-off voids of space into which the stars dare not enter. At the foot of the cliff whereon the castle stood lay a deep lake, inaccessible save by a few avenues, being surrounded on all sides with precipices which made the water look very black, although it was pure as the night sky. From a door in the castle, which was not to be otherwise entered, a broad flight of steps, cut in the rock, went down to the lake and disappeared below its surface. Some thought that the steps went to the very bottom of the water. Now in this castle there dwelt a large family of brothers and sisters. They had never seen their father or mother. The younger had been educated by the elder, and these by an unseen care and ministration, about the sources of which they had, somehow or other, troubled themselves very little, for what people are accustomed to they regard as coming from nobody, as if help and progress and joy and love were the natural crops of chaos or old night. But tradition said that one day it was, it was utterly uncertain when their father would come and leave them no more, for he was still alive, though where he lived nobody knew. In the meantime, all the rest had to obey their eldest brother and listen to his counsels. But almost all the family was very fond of liberty, as they called it, and liked to run up and down, hither and thither, roving about, with neither law nor order, just as they pleased. So they could not endure their brother's tyranny, as they called it. At one time they said that he was only one of themselves, and therefore they would not obey him. At another, that he was not like them and could not understand them, and therefore they would not obey him. Yet sometimes when he came and looked them full in the face, they were terrified and dared not disobey, for he was stately and stern and strong. Not one of them loved him heartily except the eldest sister, who was very beautiful and silent, and whose eyes shone as if light lay somewhere deep behind them. Even she, although she loved him, thought him very hard sometimes, for when he had once said a thing plainly, he could not be persuaded to think it over again. So even she forgot him sometimes, and went her own ways, and enjoyed herself without him. Most of them regarded him as a sort of watchman, whose business it was to keep them in order, and so they were indignant and disliked him. Yet they all had a secret feeling that they ought to be subject to him, and after any particular act of disregard, none of them could think, with any peace, of the old story about the return of their father to his house. But indeed they never thought much about it, or about their father at all. For how could those who cared so little for their brother, whom they saw every day, care for their father, whom they had never seen? One chief cause of complaint against him was that he interfered with their favorite studies and pursuits. 
whereas he only sought to make them give up trifling with earnest things and seek for truth and not for amusement from the many wonders around them. He did not want them to turn to their studies or to eschew pleasures, but in those studies to seek the highest things most and other things in proportion to the true worth and nobleness. This could not fail to be distasteful to those who did not care for what was higher than they. And so matters went on for a time. They thought they could do better without their brother, and their brother knew they could not do at all without him, and tried to fulfill the charge committed into his hands. At length one day, for the thought seemed to strike them simultaneously, they conferred together about giving a great entertainment in their grandest rooms to any of their neighbors who chose to come, or indeed to any inhabitants of the earth or air who would visit them. They were too proud to reflect that some company might defile even the dwellers in what was undoubtedly the finest palace on the face of the earth. But what made the thing worse was that the old tradition said that these rooms were to be kept entirely for the use of the owner of the castle. And indeed, whenever they entered them, such was the effect of their loftiness and grandeur upon their minds that they always thought of the old story and could not help believing it. Nor would the brother permit them to forget it now, but, appearing subtly amongst them, when they had no expectation of being interrupted by him, he rebuked them, both for the indiscriminate nature of their invitation and for the intention of in introducing any one, not to speak of some, who would doubtless make their appearance on the evening in question, into the rooms kept sacred for the use of the unknown father. But by this time their talk with each other had so excited their expectations of enjoyment, which had previously been strong enough, that anger sprung up within them at the thought of being deprived of their hopes. And they looked each other in the eyes, and the look said, We are many, and he is one. Let us get rid of him, for he is always finding fault and thwarting us in the most innocent pleasures, as if we wished to do anything wrong. So without a word spoken, they rushed upon him, and although he was stronger than any of them, and struggled hard at first, yet they overcame him at last. Indeed, some of them thought he yielded to their violence long before they had mastery of him, and this very submission terrified the more tender-hearted amongst them. However, they bound him, carried him down many stairs, and, having remembered an iron staple in the wall of a certain vault with a thick, rusty chain attached to it, they bore him thither and made the chain fast around him. There they left him, shutting the great, gnarling, brazen door of the vault, as they departed for the upper regions of the castle. Now all was in tumult of preparation. Everyone was talking of the coming festivities, but no one spoke of the deed they had done. A sudden paleness overspread the face, now of one and now of another, but it passed away, and no one took any notice of it. They only plied the task of the moment the more energetically. Messengers were sent far and near, not to individuals or families, but publishing in all places of concourse a general invitation to any who chose to come on a certain day and partake for certain succeeding days of the hospitality of the dwellers in the castle. Many were the preparations immediately begun for complying with the invitation, but the noblest of their neighbors refused to appear not from pride, but because 
of the unsuitableness and carelessness of such a mode. With some of them it was an old condition in the tenure of their estates that they should go to no one's dwelling except visited in person and expressly solicited. Others, knowing what sort of persons would be there, and that from a certain physical antipathy, they could scarcely breathe in their company, made up their minds at once not to go. Yet multitudes, many of them beautiful and innocent as well as gay, resolved to appear. Meanwhile, the great rooms of the castle were got in readiness, that is, they proceeded to deface them with decorations, for there was a solemnity and stateliness about them in their ordinary condition, which was at once felt to be unsuitable for the light-hearted company so soon to move about in them with the self-same carelessness with which men walk abroad within the great heavens and hills and clouds. One day, while the workmen were busy, the eldest sister of whom I have already spoken happened to enter. She knew not why. Suddenly the great idea of the mighty halls dawned upon her and filled her soul. The so-called decorations vanished from her view, and she felt as if she stood in her father's presence. She was at one elevated and humbled, as suddenly the idea faded and fled, and she beheld but the gaudy festoons and draperies and paintings which disfigured the grandeur. She wept and sped away. Now it was too late to interfere, and things must take their course. She would have been but a Cassandra prophetess for those who saw but the pleasure before them. She had not been present when her brother was imprisoned, and indeed for some days had been so wrapped in her own business that she had taken but little heed of anything that was going on. But they all expected her to show herself when the company was gathered and they had applied to her for advice at various times during their operations. At length, the expected hour arrived, and the company began to assemble. It was a warm summer evening. The dark lake reflected the rose-colored clouds in the west, and through the flush rode many gaily painted boats with various colored flags towards the massy rock on which the castle stood. The trees and flowers seemed already asleep, and breathing forth their sweet dream breath. Laughter and low voices rose from the breast of the lake to the ears of the youths and maidens looking forth expectant from the lofty windows. They went down to the broad platform at the top of the stairs in front of the door to receive their visitors. By degrees the festivities of the evening commenced. The same smiles flew forth both at eyes and lips, darting like beams to the gathering crowd. Music from unseen sources now rolled in billows, now crept in ripples through the sea of air that filled the lofty rooms. And in the dancing halls, when hand took hand, and form and motion were molded and swayed by the indwelling music, it was governed, not these alone, but as the ruling spirit of the place. Every new burst of music for a new dance swept before it, a new and accordant order and dyed the flames that glowed in the lofty lamps with a new and accordant stain. The floors bent beneath the feet of the timekeeping dancers, but twice in the evening some of the inmates started, and the pallor occasionally common to the household overspread their faces, for they felt underneath them a counter-motion to the dance, as if the floor rose slightly to answer their feet. And all the time their brother lay below in the dungeon, 
Lake John the Baptist in the castle of Herod, when the lords and captains sat around and the daughter of Herodias danced before them. Outside, all around the castle, brooded the dark night unheeded, for the clouds had come up from all sides and were crowding together overhead. In the unfrequent pauses of the music, they might have heard, now and then, the gusty rush of a lonely wind, coming and going no one could know whence or whither, born and dying, unexpected and unregarded. But when the festivities were at their height, when the external and passing confidence, which is produced between superficial natures by a common pleasure, was at the full, a sudden crash of thunder quelled the music, as the thunder quells the noise of, an, of the uplifted sea. The windows were driven in, and torrents of rain, carried in the folds of a rushing wind, poured into the halls. The lights were swept away, and the great rooms, now dark within, were darkened yet more by the dazzling shoots of flame from the vault of blackness overhead. Those that ventured to look out of the windows saw, in the blue brilliancy of the quick-following jets of lightning, the lake at the foot of the rock, ordinarily so still and so dark, lighted up, not on the surface only, but down to half its depth, so that, as it tossed in the wind, like a tortured sea of writhing flames, or incandescent half-molten serpent of brass, they could not tell whether a strong phosphorescence did not issue from the transparent body of the waters, as if earth and sky lightened together, one consenting source of flaming utterance. Sad was the condition of the late plastic mass of living form that had flowed into shape at the will and law of the music. Broken into individuals, the common transfusing spirit withdrawn, they stood drenched, cold and benumbed, with clinging garments, light, order, harmony, purpose departed, and chaos restored. The issuings of life turned back on their sources, chilly and dead, and in every heart reigned the falsest of despairing convictions that this was the only reality, and that was but a dream. The eldest sister stood with clasped hands and downbent head, shivering and speechless, as if waiting for something to follow. Nor did she wait long. A terrible flash and thunder peal made the castle rock, and in the pausing silence that followed, her quick sense heard the rattling of a chain far off, deep down, and soon the sound of heavy footsteps, accompanied with the clanking of iron, reached her ear. She felt that her brother was at hand, even in the darkness and amidst the bellowing of another deep-bosomed cloud monster, she knew that he had entered the room. A moment after, a continuous pulsation of angry blue light began, which lasting for some moments revealed him standing amidst them, gaunt, haggard, and motionless, his hair and beard untrimmed, his face ghastly, his eyes large and hollow. The light seemed to gather around him as a center. Indeed, some believed that it throbbed and radiated from his person and not from the stormy heavens above them. The lightning had rent the walls of his prison and released the iron staple of his chain, which, had, which he had wound about him like a girdle. In his hand he carried an iron fetter bar, which he had found on the floor of the vault. More terrified at his aspect than all the violence of the storm, the visitors, with many a shriek and cry, rushed out into the tempestuous night. By degrees, the storm died away. Its last flash revealed the forms of the brothers and sisters, 
lying prostrate with their faces on the floor and that fearful shape standing motionless amidst them still. Well, we had to just pause. Sean lit his pipe and we just had to take a deep breath before we commence because I just feel like I wrote like 500,000 notes about this story. I just, oh, I really love it. Let's start with the title. The Castle. Mm -hmm. The Castle. And when I heard Castle... And also in reading the first paragraph, to be fair, I did think of the interior castle by St. Teresa of Avila. And I have a confession to make. I've never read that. And yeah, neither have I. Yeah. But, you know, it's known in Catholic circles. You can't really go to St. Thomas and graduate with a Catholic studies degree without having it come up in conversation. Is that the same at St. John's University? Probably not. <laughs> I didn't think so. Um, okay, in Minnesota, there's two Catholic colleges, St. Thomas and St. John's, and they're, they're sworn blood enemies, and I'm a Tommy, and Sean is a Johnny, so there you go. Just remember the Johnnies are the best. You can, yeah. um, okay, so anyway, basically, St. Teresa of Avila talks about, in my understanding, is that the soul is like a castle. It's an interior castle. And as you grow in your life of grace, you move higher and higher up in the castle. So you start at the gate and, um, and then you move throughout the different chambers as you continue in on your spiritual life of grace towards God. And I've always been captivated by that image as just all these different rooms and these rooms being different parts of yourself and different parts of your soul. Um, and I think that this first paragraph describes that. And if you, if uh, what I like to do typically in my life these days is just like unify Jung's thought with with my faith tradition, with the Orthodox faith tradition, because I do see a lot of similarities. And I think that Jung would say, like, this is a good analogy of, of the psyche of, of the person. There's different parts to a person. And I just love George MacDonald's imagery here. You're saying the castle is, is the psyche? Yeah, I mean, I think just all the different rooms, the different parts, and how some parts are shrouded in mystery. I think, you know, even, oh man, I mean, there's just so many levels and layers to this. Um, I'm thinking about also this sentence where he says, everyone looked upon it, felt that it was lordly and noble, and where one part seemed not to agree with another, the wise and modest dared not to call them incongruous, but presumed that the whole might be constructed on some higher principle of architecture than they yet understood. And that reminded me of Chesterton basically talking about how what helped him move toward the Catholic Church 
was the fact that people hated it for for reasons that conflicted. Like it was either too pious or it was too unholy. It was too rich and it was too poor. And so there were all these things that appeared to conflict with each other. Um, but, you know, it was nevertheless like a one holy Catholic church that, that I don't know, D.K. Chesterton just saw it as not a question of either or, but of, of both and. You know, I think, I think we do have a lot of things in our tradition that seem to conflict with each other, and yet there's something that does bind them all together, even though we can't always understand it. It's a higher principle of architecture than they yet understood. And so I just, I love the layers of the imagery here, that we have a castle, we have the way that this castle is reflecting the church, we have the way this castle is reflecting like the psyche and um, the soul, if you want to ask St. Teresa of Avila. And I just really love all the, all the layers that are happening here. Yeah, I like the, there's kind of a mystery about it. It's where it's always wrapped in thick folds of mist from the mountain, and I I like that a lot because it's 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 mysterious still. Yeah, and I think that's kind of our faith is definitely mysterious, and probably our psyche. I don't know as much about the psyche as you do, but well, I mean, just to say this, look, I am not I am not a trained psychologist no. at all, or yeah, like I don't know anything. I I mean, that is not my background. It's just that I have journeyed on it myself, and I love it these days. I can't get enough of it. I will probably mention this Jungian Life podcast in every episode. If anybody wants to invent a drinking game or something, or like a bet, a bet, maybe you can do a wager. Like, this, she'll mention it this time. I'm, I actually told myself I wasn't going to bring it up this time, but here I am talking about it. So... Anyway, I just really do love it. But look, I'm not a counselor, a psychologist, so consider me as someone who's just bringing ideas up to the table. Listeners, do with them what you will, but <laughs> there it is. Um, yeah, so I, I highlighted this, yeah, about the partially revealed stuff. The beholders could hardly tell whether they had seen them before or whether they were now for the first time partially revealed. That, to me, speaks so much to how the discovery of the self transpires. It happens through dreams. It happens in very subtle, mysterious ways. It happens in our unconscious. And, you know, dreams are, are these things that are trying to help us reveal the mystery of our unconscious and bring it to conscience, but there's a lot of mystery still. But, but the unfolding of that mystery is is essential and important and i think this story has a lot to say about that i mean even this it often discovered rooms they had never entered before yea once or twice whole suites of apartments of which only dim religions had been handed down from former times i love that because Jung talks about how there's like a collective unconscious so we're being influenced by things in our in our culture that we're not even fully aware of 
we have like a connection to the past through what he called the archetypes. So like the myth of Psyche and Cupid last time, Mm -hmm. how that tale like still resonates within us. The, The things that that tale teaches us about being who we are is true throughout all the ages. And so this, this bit about only dim legends had been handed down from former times and like this room seems kind of familiar to me, you know, where it's like, like, I feel like I've been here before, but I don't remember. And just that experience, like, have you ever had an experience where you just know something and you don't know why you know that or something just like resonates with you? On a deep level. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure I have. I'm trying to think of a, a specific example of that. But I know what you're saying, yes. Yeah. I don't have specifics either. Yeah. And I love the image. You know, when I read this too, about the castle and just how there was like so many rooms and doors to explore... It made me think of of my mother-in-law, your mom, Sean, and I got her permission to talk about this, but she has this awesome recurring dream where she's in this huge house with endless doors, and she's just opening all the doors. And I'll never forget when she told me that because I thought, what an awesome dream. Is it like a scary dream? No, I mean, well, you should ask her next time we see them, we see her, but the the impression I got was that it's a, a fun dream, a good dream. Yeah. But yeah, you should ask her to make sure. Well, in The Princess and the Goblin, there's uh, the princess is exploring the palace or the castle that they live in. And she, she gets into a spot where she goes upstairs and then she kind of loses herself and she goes upstairs and downstairs and comes to a bunch of doors. And Mm. so it's, it's kind of interesting that, that, uh, that's kind of a recurring thing in what he says. And and, in that story, which is great, it's especially a great, great story for kids. Um, but it's, I think of, it's kind of a way of him showing that you have to go through kind of that unknown to to maybe get to know yourself or find what you're you're looking for. That's kind of I think part of the point that he's getting across in that in that other story, but uh, it's fairly early on in that story. Are there? I honestly haven't read that one yet. Maybe maybe that'll be our one hundredth episode. We'll start the princess. And the goblin, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there parents in that story? Is there mom and dad in that one? Mm-hmm. Her dad is the king. Mm-hmm. But like, kind of like this, he's he's kind of away. Um, and I don't think there's a mother. I don't think that I don't remember. Uh, I'm sure it probably references the mother, but I don't think the mother's in the story. Well, I feel like that's a theme for George McDonald because I remember, well, in this story, they it says they had never seen their mother or father, and it's just siblings. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I remember in our first episode, we talked about King Cole and there, he was addicted to drink and food and that, you know, typically symbolizes mother and father. So we can assume there was an absence for him there too. So, um, I just feel like this is a really big theme for George McDonald. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I encounter it in this story, I think about it symbolizing like the mature masculine and feminine are missing. If I look at the castle and this entire story as one person and all these different pieces are just part of this person's inner self, mm-hmm. I would consider this person to be childish. You gotta explain that to me a little bit, I guess. Can you say that again? If what's the person? The castle is a person. Well, if I see this entire story as a person, as a person, like this is the story about one person and the castle and the siblings and the the party and the incoming storm are parts of the person. What's going on mm-hmm. inside of them? I think. Well, in this story and in in the person, I would say the mature masculine and and feminine are missing because the mother, the mother and the father are absent Mm -hmm. and it's all these siblings and, and just the fact too that now granted, I don't care how old you are, there is going to be parts of you that are unexplored, Mm -hmm. but the fact that there is so much mystery And in particular, though, this part caught my attention. They had a dim consciousness, too, of the presence in those awful regions of beings whom they could not comprehend. Once they came upon the brink of a great black gulf in which the eye could see nothing but darkness, they recoiled with horror, for the conviction flashed upon them that that gulf went down into the very central spaces of the earth, of which they had hitherto been wandering only in the upper crust. Nay, that the seething blackness before them had relations mysterious and beyond human comprehension with the far-off voids of space into which the stars dare not enter. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That, to me, is... Like, the shadow. Oh, yeah? See, I think of that more as, like, hell, but that's probably more simple than what you're... No, because I think... I mean, I think if you think about Christ's descent into Hades... Yeah. There is an element of of hell. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. In the shadow. And in in, in Mm -hmm. Hades. Sure. Um, And, oh, man, there's a great Orthodox saint. I'm going to butcher his name. Saint Porphinius? Gosh, I don't know. But he says, like, you do need to look at the shadow, but then you need to step back and and have a cup of tea, which is what we're doing. We're having tea and drinks in a pipe. But it's like, you do need to look at that and and then step back. He also says, keep your mind in hell and despair not, which I love. But just the fact that, like, the shadow in this in this part of the story it's it's 
regarded with horror and they don't want to go there at all. They avoid it. Like they mm-hmm. see it and then mm-hmm. they, yeah. Yeah, it's horror. They, yes, exactly. Exactly. I wanted to go back real quick to something you highlighted about it being all siblings. And I, it was on my radio on the way to work one day. They were talking about siblings and how your siblings are the people in your life that are in your life the longest than anybody mm-hmm. else. And I, and I mm. thought that was kind of interesting. You know, your parents obviously are in a different stage of life when you're born. And, you know, they'll, they'll you know, of course, time will pass before you. Um, so I like that he uses the siblings because if this is like a story saying how you kind of evolve as a person and mm-hmm. come to find salvation, maybe the people that are in, on that journey with you are your siblings throughout the whole thing. I think that's pretty, pretty cool. That is cool. I mean, they're like, it's weird that they have like, like you, they have both your mother and your father's mm-hmm. blood. And yeah, I've never thought about it that way. Sorry, that takes us a little bit off. No, off I, uh, the topic, I'm just but... remembering. Like, I vividly remember my brother telling me that, like, one of our high school teachers once went up to him and was like, Your sister's the only thing you'll have left soon, or something oh like that. <laughs> just like, but he's right. I mean, I guess. Maybe that's what he was getting at. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I think it was. I mean, there is something, and I don't, honestly. I didn't do my homework. I, I was. I wanted to look up what are siblings in in myth and fairy tale because I think about like Hansel and Gretel, siblings. Um, just trying to think of other fairy. Oh yeah, like oh no, there's a great Russian fairy tale about a brother and a sister, but brother Ivanushka and sister Ali. I don't know. Whatever. Okay, listen to uh people listen to um. Deacon Nicholas Kotar's episode in a certain kingdom. There's a whole bunch of really awesome Russian fairy tales that that he reads and then discusses. It's great for kids. Um. Anyway, if you're into fairy tales, I would recommend that. So yeah, we have a situation with siblings. We have a situation where they're they're too afraid to look at the shadow. There's just so many directions we could go here. I guess. One thing I wanted to point out before we move on to another topic, just to stay on this level of like the lack of mature masculine and feminine, is this line. It might be my favorite line in the whole story, which says, about the sources of which they had somehow or other troubled themselves very little. For what people are accustomed to, they regard as coming from nobody, as if help and progress and joy and love were the natural crops of chaos or old night. I I love that line so much because first of all, it's modern man right there, right there, modernity. As if they came from nobody. What's old night? Well, I don't know. See, that's a, I was actually going to ask that. Because I love, I love that chaos is capitalized here, and so is night. Yeah, I don't know. I love that. 
but here's here's my intuition about that is is they're li they're living this childish unconscious level so it's like so they are at the whim of of chaos and old night and if you go through chaos or old night miraculously what follows is progress and joy and there's no like reflection i guess there's no like it, it just they're just passively at the whims of these forces of chaos or old night and then boop all of a sudden now progress joy and love are following but naturally like it just happens to you 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 don't have to you don't have to encounter it or like take it and grapple with it mm -hmm. that's what i got from this and like they, they, there's so much packed into this little sentence i feel like like there's those mysterious things, chaos or old night, which are almost like persons or spirits because they are capitalized. Yeah, yeah, that's I didn't notice that until you pointed that out. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't, I don't know much about George McDonald, but I just ordered this book from Amazon. It's it was recently recommended to me, and it's called How the Scots Built the Modern World or something like that. And. I wonder what was happening in George MacDonald's time because this is such a reflection of, of our modern predicament. We walk around and things happen to us and we, we, have, we have no idea. We think that it's just us by ourselves. We don't think about Zeus. I mean, not that, I mean, look, I don't worship Zeus. I don't think. But they don't think about Zeus. I mean, they don't think about like spirits. They don't think about our like our parent, like our parents, our forefathers. I mean, all these. They don't think about the collective unconscious. And look, people, I'm trying not to be on a soapbox here. I don't either. I mean, I am just as much of a modern person as as your next door neighbor. It's just like I've been very privileged and grateful to be curious, and um, I was given many gifts to to put me on this path to to explore and be curious about these things and i think i think just being a part of a of an ancient faith tradition helps too i mean catholics have weird stuff going on i mean our liturgy is weird let's face it <laughs> like there's a lot that was handed down over the mm -hmm. centuries especially if you go to a traditional latin mass i mean man jung had really cool things to say about the latin mass if anyone's interested by the way People, you know, us in, in modern times, we, do, we just don't think that way. We don't, we're so divorced from, from cult, from ritual. Um, I'd say particularly, I guess, modern Americans have it the worst <laughs> because unless you're backwoods and you do like Maria Von Trapp's Advent customs every year or something like that, mm -hmm. <laughs> like we do. You just, you're, you're not connected. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I, that, that line just meant a lot to me. And then you are at the whims of chaos or old night. And you depend on them to bring about progress and joy and love. It's interesting, I guess. The next sentence says, but tradition said that one day, it was utterly uncertain when their father would come and leave them no more, for he was still alive 
though where he lived nobody knew. And tradition is capitalized there too. Um, and it's interesting that their father is still alive. So even though this is like a landscape vacant of the father with these children and there's the shadow and they're at the whims of chaos or old night, nevertheless, like the father will come. Yeah, and the tradition is interesting. Like you said, I kind of highlighted that because it's referenced multiple times in the story in different ways. Hmm. Um, just before that, a little ways, it says, um, of, of which only dim legend had, had been handed down from former times. And then later on, it's got a point um, where it says that the old tradition said that these rooms were to be kept entirely for the use of the owner of the castle. And that It's not capitalized there. And then shortly after it says, always thought of the old story and could not help believing it. I, it's, it's fascinating that he uses different terms, but I mm. think he's coming back to the same thing. This, some type of tradition I don't know if it's their faith or what, or if it's just their history, like the how they're supposed to keep the rooms. Like this was just like a family, family tradition of how to act and how to behave and how to respect their dwelling. Um, it's never defined, is it? No, and like I said, it's different terms are used. Mm. I think it's story, tradition, legend. And I feel like it's their link with the king, with the father and mother. Yeah. Maybe specifically well, father. the father. Mother's yeah. not even referenced. Well, yeah, there. see, that's, I, yeah, I was literally, I was just thinking about that because it says they have never seen their mother or father. And whenever mother is absent in a fairy tale, it's the absence of the feminine. But we have the sister and the brother. Which I want to get to. I mean, they're kind of next on stage in the story, but just going back to what you were saying about tradition, it's almost like a thread throughout the whole story. I feel like mm -hmm. that it's like just this, yeah, this pulsing thread that keeps it all connected. Yeah, it keeps it from yeah. being either chaos or old night, I think. Yeah, it's kind of like they're one, they're one thread connecting them to the king. Mm -hmm. And maybe not only to the king, but their thread upholding what it means to live in that castle and be in that family. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's thunder. Oh my gosh, this is the best podcast recording ever. Oh wow, this is so cool. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, thanks to our listener's question, um, I now kind of look for Lord of the Rings in his stories, and I'm definitely thinking about um, Gondor and how there is no king in Gondor, but there is a steward. And now comes the eldest brother. Because he's sort of like the steward, I think. So who's a steward? So a steward is someone who kind of looks after the kingdom while the king is away. And who was that in Lord of the Rings? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Of... That's Denethor. 
Boromir's father. So Boromir's a member of the fellowship, the guy with the horn. <laughs> oh my high, my like my oh gosh literary crush in high school i didn't um, speak elvish in high school. <laughs> yeah you missed out man oh yeah that's good um the hobbit girl i've come a long way <laughs> here i am at 34 years old oh, I'm getting still back talking to about it <laughs> I'm trying to picture who that is. Okay, Stuart. well, all right. Yeah, the steward. So Dan, he's the guy who who runs up in the movie. He's he's the one who runs off burning like this burning ball of flame and throws himself off of. Oh yeah, Minas the guy that's eating them. Yeah, the guy. The tomatoes and the squirts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my okay. gosh, that's so Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, he's not portrayed well though. No, he's not. But and the look, older brother is different. I don't in know. This story. I, I don't, I don't see know that. But. I don't know. Okay, I think like this. Okay, so when you read it, that was about my third, fourth time reading the story, and and I I kind of changed my feelings of him this read, but for the first like for the first two or three reads of this story, I have disliked the eldest brother, and I've seen him as a Denethor figure. I, I haven't seen that. All right. So let's talk about him. Let's talk about this eldest brother. They have to obey him and listen to his counsels, but he's not the king. Yeah, he's not the king, but he's a very... I, I think he's a very... Uh, good replacement for the king. Is there's a line where he said he did not want them to turn to other studies or askew pleasures, but in those studies to seek the highest things most and other things in proportion to their true worth and nobleness. And as the story goes, I he's he's almost like a Christ figure to me. In I, this, I don't want to give story, but. I don't want to give too much away of the second part. I see where you're going, though. And he is... What, what troubled me the first few times I read this story is how George McDonald's, George McDonald uses John the Baptist to describe him. Yeah, that troubled me. That did trouble me. Why? Because I do not like the... I did not like the older brother, the eldest brother. I thought he was a bit of a tyrant. According to those siblings... Yes, but I was. But the siblings. I was on the sibling side. Let me tell you, I just thought with this line. Um, but almost all the family was very fond of liberty, as they called it, and liked to run up and down, hither and thither, roving about with neither law nor order, just as they pleased. So they could not endure their brother's tyranny, as they called it. Okay, fair enough. However, I wrote down my dream because I think I do love that. I, I love that. I love that um, that life. However, however, in reading it this time around, it reminded me of like a Barbie situation of just endless parties. Anything is possible. There's no law yeah. or order, and it it. That's it, how it, I've seen it. <laughs> 
It is. When I, no, I know. I'm just laughing at our different takes on this. Like when I was reading this, I was like, I want to be at that party. I'm coming to that party. I have more to say on on how I feel about the party now. But it is. It does have a different tone for me now that I've I've read it this time around. However, I do think that we're going to get to this in the second second half of the story. There there is something off with the brother because look, Donald Kalshed, who is this great great Jungian author, writes about this this book called like Trauma in the Soul and how when something traumatic happens, um an angel like, not literally an angel, but maybe. Who knows? Who knows? But we'll just think about this symbolically for now. An angel is going to come and remove them from the traumatic situation to keep their psyche alive, essentially. And so this angel, like, lifts them up to high pursuits. And what's noble and worthy and true, it lifts them up high off the ground. But then it can also becomes sort of a tyrant like it, it, it like it, it disembodies essentially it has to to keep the person alive but that disembodiment can become tyrannical and I do think that there is an element of tyranny here um he's he, look, he's not the king still no. He's trying to be. I don't. I don't. But think he's. So. I think he's overcorrecting. They were okay. Look, they were terrified, and dared not disobey, for he was stately and stern and strong. None of them loved him heartily, except the eldest sister. But I. I do think that that's a problem. So you can't be stately and stern. <laughs> well, you can, but. Is he too much of that? Like I don't in think his, so. well, there's no example of that in the story. But they don't love him. They're terrified of him. I don't think that's his fault. I think that's their fault. <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, that's that's fair, Sean. I mean, it's interesting. They have a secret feeling that they ought to be subject to him. And after any particular act of disregard, none of them could think with any peace of the old story about the return of the father to his house. See, it's the old story. It's not, it's not the brother. It's themselves thinking about the old story. I mean, I do see the eldest brother. I will give him this. I, I do see him... Trying to help his siblings, like, by, by, he did not want them to turn to other studies or skew pleasures, but in those studies, seek the highest things most. Someone, uh, look, I, I'm a, I'm an, an iconographer in training, and I was just getting advice from another iconographer, and he gave me such good advice because we were talking about the different methods. Like I'm, I'm learning by using like these acrylic paints and he was talking about how cool it is to just use, um, egg tempura. And I was like, gosh, I just feel like I need to learn the acrylic method first. And 
he wrote, um, excitement will always die before mastery is acquired, which... Can I say that one more time? Excitement will always die before mastery is acquired. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, which definitely speaks to me. But I also, and I think it does go back to the childish land we're in in this story. And I think he is trying to help them grow but I, I still go back to I just don't think he's doing as good a job as the king would have I think he's too tyrannical you may be right I don't well, I just don't I agree but I know <laughs> we just don't agree that's yeah. fine yeah no that is fine um yeah absolutely he well one more thing yeah he, he let them overtake him. So, would a tyrant do that? If he could see some gain by it. But, but no, Ashan. I mean, I don't think he, he's doing that in the story. I, yeah, I think this older, this oldest brother is is a bit like the steward. Because you do have to pass through... I mean, you do have to be a child, right? You do have to play. You do have to run about... I mean, that is my ideal situation as a mother. I don't think George MacDonald is saying that you can't do that. Well, the eldest brother doesn't really seem to like it. Because he interrupts them. I think as we read the next... Second half of the story, people will come to my side. But. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, stay tuned, everyone. I'm just, I'm throwing out these different aspects of the, the eldest brother. Like, maybe he's a bit of a both and. Yeah, could be. Could be. But I, I still, I don't think that George McDonald is saying that you should avoid chaos at all costs. Through the story by through the through the eldest brother mm-hmm. you mean well why not i mean that's that's well, all he to does to find to, to read the rest of it probably <laughs> for me to say that okay man i i hope we double our listener population or our subscriber population we're just the suspense is rising okay well look so then yeah as as sean as you pointed out they bind him and they carry him down many stairs, and they staple him to a wall, and um, they put him in a vault. So he has basically descended into the unconscious, as I would say. He's been banished, and that's never a good solution, ever, to banish something into the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting part. I never thought about that. Yeah, I think, I can't remember if it was Jung or a Jungian said, all are welcome at the table, so... So if you banish it, what happens? Well, I think this George MacDonald answers that for us in this story. Like, there is a... So they have this party, 
And it was interesting because, like I said, when I first read about this party, well, I'll talk about that later. But, like, a tempest, I mean, a tempest happens. I don't know what a tempest is. An eruption. A, a tempest is a wild, violent storm. Um, that's exactly what happens when you banish something to the unconscious. It oh, comes back with that's vengeance. A, that's a tempest. Well, what happened? Like, the storm. I mean, I feel like... I don't like, know what a tempest is. Is a tempest just a wild storm, or does it have to happen at sea? Or if someone... tempest, is that a term for the psyche part of the psyche or is that just no it's just like i feel like when you banish something to the unconscious it comes back like a tempest it's an analogy like a storm a wild i guess i don't storm. think of a storm as a tempest i guess i think of a person but maybe i just don't know what the meaning of tempest is well it's like i think it's sometimes used to describe a temper right oh a person yeah right is that where you're coming from yeah yeah, Maybe. I think it's like an analogy. A tempest. Tempest in a teapot. That's more of a personal thing than like a natural thing, like a storm. But I think it comes from, so it's like we say, like a, he made a mountain out of a molehill. Like a mountain and a molehill are, are things in nature, like a tempest yeah. is a thing in nature, a it storm. Is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I don't I see. don't understand, I guess, but Yeah. So they banish the brother, but they pay for it. They pay for it. In fact, it's funny, George McDonald's even says rushed out into the tempestuous night. Yeah. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but there is elements of the story that remind me of Shakespeare's play The Tempest. I mean, that is also about siblings in conflict with each other, and Prospero is a sibling that's been banished to the island. Um, okay. Is it the storm? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It starts out with the storm. So, yeah, I mean, I just thought that was interesting that they try to banish the brother, but then a tempest erupts. But I guess, if you don't mind, I would like to go back to this party for just a second. Because I was saying, like, I wanted to be at this party. It Why? just sounded so, well, it's not, I mean, the dance, the way that the dancing and the music. Yeah, I like And people are coming that. in boats, and it just sounds so fun. But then, like I said, when you read this aloud, I picked up on things that I had not picked up before. Like, first of all, that they invited anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. and. That's also a mistake. I mean, you don't want to invite in any and every spirit, I guess, or like just yeah. anything. You know, the spirit of the age. Um, I think you, you need to be in relationship with everything, including the spirit of the age, but you don't necessarily want to invite everything in. Yeah, I agree. Well, it never seemed like a party that I would want to go to. <laughs> when I was reading this. All right, so why? Or tell me, tell me why. Just because the start of it was against the brother and the tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but 
Like, just the fact that he was against it kind of gave you a bad feeling about it. And they they even seemed like, well, they knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. But they did it anyway because they were so far into it. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting... I like that. They couldn't step back. And even the the eldest sister sister Mm -hmm. realized that, even though she knew it was wrong, and she was saddened and went away and was crying. She was too busy to address the siblings like the brother did. I can see why what you're saying would seem fun. I like the way that George McDonald described the music and people coming in boats. Yeah, that seems fun. It is hard for me to see that as as bad. Or that even George McDonald is saying that's bad. I mean... I don't think he's saying that's bad. So how is... What's the relationship? He's saying it's bad in the castle. The castle is not made for that. Hmm. The tradition doesn't allow for that. So he's not saying partying is bad. I think he's just saying in this context, in this castle, it's not to be allowed. But why? Like, if it's if it's bad, or okay, I'm sorry. Well, there's there's rules to it, right? Yeah. Okay, there's that's maybe what I was it. getting at. Yeah, it's like there's it's it's good within the frame of tradition. Yeah. Yeah. You have to invite yeah. the people in person or whatever. No, I think you might be onto something. I mean, I think that we talked about leisure, the basis of culture. Joseph Pieper's work in one of the episodes, I think it was Consider the Ravens. And he just talked about how, like, there was never a festival in the ancient world that wasn't related to the gods. Mm -hmm. Well, and this festival wasn't either. Right. I mean, this festival is just willy-nilly. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, anything goes, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no rooting in tradition of this festival. It's almost like they're doing it just to spite the brother. Well, I kind of would too. I mean, <laughs> this is where I just feel like, <laughs> I don't know. I, they, look, the angel, according to Donald Kalshed, I mean, yes, he saves you, but he also... Yeah, maybe he was too strict that it yeah. pushed him farther away. Could be. Mm-hmm. I love how the decorations are called gaudy. When she sees, the eldest sister sees the gaudy in contrast with the the stateliness, the grandeur that, that's been disfigured. She, she weeps and sped away. And it says she would have been but a Cassandra prophetess. And I had to look that up because yeah, I've never heard that of that before. And I guess Cassandra, there's different versions of the myth, but basically um, she did something to make Apollo mad. And so he kind of cursed her with the ability to see the future and tell it, but that no one would ever believe her. And I think she hmm. has something to do with the Battle of Troy as well um but i thought that that was an interesting connection and myth and i wonder if george mcdonald is sort of st- 
understanding and like if she's kind of reflecting maybe how George McDonald is feeling at this time. His sister? Yeah. I mean, women have, like, well, the feminine in both men and women, but particularly women, I'd say. But men have it, too. The ability to, um, I, I, like, this ability, maybe, to have, like, more of an intuitive feeling. I mean, she goes, she's very emotional about it, too. I mean, she, she's crying. She feels um, knee-deep that she can't stop it. But she has, like, she has the sight she can see it. She can see how the gaudiness is destroying the grandeur. And something fills her soul. And wow, what a powerful, what a powerful example of the feminine here. To be able to see this, but also like you have to weep about it because she's kind of, yeah, stuck. Um, mm -hmm. she, she can't stop it at this point. She doesn't have a masculine, an inner masculine that's strong enough to defend her or to, you know, do anything about what she saw. Mm -hmm. I did have to look this up because something in my memory stirred in conversations I've had with, with Orthodox folk and, and listening to the Lord of Spirits podcast is that I think the tradition says that music came about from a descendant of Cain. We're talking about Cain, uh, you know, Cain and Abel, and Cain is the one who was cursed. So Cain actually has a wife and then has sons. And I think, like... This passage is gonna is 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 kind of linking these things to Cain in his line though. Alright, so um so his wife bore Enoch and he builds a city. Um and then Enoch to Enoch was born was born Irad, Irad father Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lemech, and Lemech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah, Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So you were, what were you talking about music then? Like it's coming from well, Cain? Well, I mean, it's okay. So I'm just like, I'm, I'm wrestling with this presentation that George MacDonald brings here. Because it, it does sound really great and fun and nothing bad about it. The music and the dancing. Well, and nothing bad about it? I like what, so I like this, this was probably my favorite line or part half line there he said a, a sudden crash of thunder quelled the music as the thunder quells the noise of an uplifted sea to me he's comparing music and an up, uplifted sea but what's bad about an up, uplifted sea it's chaos it's chaos yeah. yeah it's destructive so music can be destructive and dancing but 
in this context. It might. I mean, it come. It comes from Cain's lineage. I don't. Again, I think it's more. I don't think he would say it was bad. Right. But so. I'm, but what I'm saying is like everyone maybe is just like not used to music being considered bad. I mean, especially when it's described as something joyful it is and described beautiful. As something joyful. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's supposed to be happening in this way. The music isn't supposed to be in this castle with this type of festivity. I'm sure there's a place for music in the castle. It's just not this. Yeah. That tradition probably, you know, says. Mm-hmm. It doesn't ever say anything in the in the story about that, but I'm 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 wrestling with the fact that like the height of joy doesn't have a place in this castle. I'm wrestling with that. With George McDonald, that's what he does. I think. I think he purposely does that. Why? Why do you think that? Or why does he do that? Do you think? I think it's you to think about it. I think. Because it comes off as yeah, that's not right. That can't be right. And it makes you think about it. Mm-hmm. He does that a lot. And then the more you think about it, it's like hmm. It's kind of right. Well, and yeah, the daughter of Herodias danced before the courts of Herod. Um, how he's evil compar- is that? He's comparing yeah. that to the festivities. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, maybe you know, oh, this is interesting, Sean, because <laughs> I circled. In the midst of this talk of, of, of the dance and the music and Herod and John the Baptist, it says, he's, he, George MacDonald writes, Outside, all around the castle, brooded the dark night unheeded. Um, I mean, the, the story talks out with the, with the children unable to look into the, the shadow. They won't look at it. They won't heed the dark night. Mm-hmm. The dark night of the soul, as St. John of the Cross wrote. And so it's maybe, maybe what's bad about this dancing, this music, is that it's still a child like that should be an adult. Yeah, could be. That won't mm-hmm. grow up. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to bring up I, another part that I really liked a lot. When they're dancing, it says they felt underneath them a counter motion to the dance as if the floor rose slightly to answer their feet. Yeah, what's that about? Well, a counter motion, so it's basically trying to quell the dance a little bit, I think. Because right after that, it says, and the the brother laid low in the dungeon. So... Hmm. It's like the hmm. forces are trying to quell the dance. It's almost like you can't really dance unless you acknowledge the brother, unless you acknowledge the dark yeah. night, unless you acknowledge the shadow. You can't really do it. It's gaudy. Mm-hmm. It's fake. 
Oh, I love this. Sad was the condition of the late plastic mass of living mm-hmm. form that had flowed into shape at the will and law of the music. Okay, that's fascinating to me, actually. That's quite fascinating. Plastic is is not real. I mean, it's real insofar as, like, you can <coughs> touch it and whatever. But, like, it's... In a way, it's not real, though. I mean, there's a difference between wood and plastic, glass. I mean, I had reached out to a Jungian analyst about what is plastic, and and he said it was a bit of like mercury, where it's like you can make in you can make it mm. into anything. You know, it has that connection, and um, I've never been a fan of plastic. And George McDonald uses that word, <laughs> and it's interesting that. It had flowed into shape at the will and law of the music. Yeah, that is very interesting. Isn't that interesting? Broken into individuals, the common transfusing spirit withdrawn. Wow. Broken into individuals, the common transfusing spirit withdrawn. Wow. That's really powerful, actually. Everyone, when you're done listening to this podcast, listen to this Union Life episode called Death of the Soul. Now we're getting deep. I mean, they talk about how person's soul experiences a type of death. Like, not, not, not in, as we as, as Catholics or Christians would understand it. Like, their body isn't, it's not that their soul, well, it's not like they've died and their soul is either in heaven or hell, or but just like the loss of sense of self and how when that happens, the collective spirit usually sweeps in and possesses the person. Mm. And I think, oh my gosh, that's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, here it is in George MacDonald, I feel like. Very, not even that subtly. The common transfusing spirit withdrawn. This spirit with the music had molded plastic. And it says, Harmony, purpose departed, and chaos restored. The issuings of life turned back on their sources, chilly and dead. And in every heart reigned the falsest of despairing convictions that this was the only reality. And that was but a dream. And that's awful, though. Yeah. It's pretty gloom. Like, the fact that... Maybe this is where I'm coming from earlier, is, like, the fact that this joy, this fun, was but a dream. And, yeah, like, this death is reality. And then, yeah, and then look who we have back. Yeah, it's interesting. And he's back. Mm-hmm. There's a continuous pulsation of angry, angry blue light coming from him. Mm-hmm. But it said some believed that it radiated from this person, not from the stormy heavens above. Mm-hmm. I think that's a Christ-like thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think as you're talking um, about him being like the Christ-like figure. I'm connecting him right now in this moment to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. 
because it says the lightning had rent the wall of his prison and released the iron staple of his chain, which he had wound about him like a girdle. Yeah. So if we think about him returning from the depths, from Hades, Mm -hmm. that he's wearing it almost as a sign of that death being his triumph. Exactly like how, yes, this is exactly what Sir Gawain in the tale of the Green Knight does. And I don't, we don't have time to read that. So I would, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, But that, that's exactly, that imagery is, is very powerful here. I mean, there's definitely a connection, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I'm thinking about that this death is so necessary. I mean, I I think even thinking about the sisters' despair in every heart, like Pinocchio can't become a real boy until he dies. But nobody dies except the brother. Well, does he die? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess symbolically he yeah. he's, he, he descends. Die, but... but I do think there, like, this great tempest that happens that destroys the party, that breaks the plastic. That so they kind of die. There, there is a death yeah. here, I think. I mean, there yeah, is this, yeah, like, it's painful, and it's, <laughs> it's depressing, and people are on the floor. They're lying prostrate with their faces on the floor. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And he is like a ghost. I mean, his eyes large and hollow, gaunt, haggard, motionless, yeah. his hair and beard untrimmed. I mean, there's a John the Baptist reference for you there, too. Maybe that's a good place to to end the I first, think so. first of two episodes here. I think so. Yep, the Tempest is, has destroyed, but the brother is risen. He's back, and we're going to find out what happens next. I also just wanted to say we were really excited to answer a listener's question in this episode. So if you are listening and you have a question, please look at our Patreon page. Consider becoming our our Patreon. We have different levels of involvement, as low as $3 a month. We also have an email address, though, georgemcdonaldandus at gmail.com. It's all one word, all lowercase, and we'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please tell your friends and consider becoming a Patreon. We really appreciate having you along on bringing George McDonald back into the culture. Have a great night. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thanks for listening. Take care.